whether we are sharing it or saving others or sending others out to give the gospel. And then there are those things which are called myths, things that we make up, things that we think sound good, and we develop these superstitions or these myths, and we count those as being truth. Now, Scripture talks about how we are to avoid godless myths. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7 says, Have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. Rather, train yourself to be godly, for physical training is of some value. But godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. So these godless myths, well, what would some of those things be? One godless myth, and these are just out there in society, but a godless myth is, and maybe you've heard this, opals. You know what the opal stone is? It's a myth that opals are bad luck for the people that have them. Except if it's your birthstone. Now, you want to know where that came from? Anne of Geristein by Sir Walter Scott. He wrote in there that a drop of holy water was placed on an opal stone and it turned it to a dark color. And he wrote this fiction piece of work. And because of that, the stock market on opals dropped 50%. And people stopped buying opals. I remember hearing that when I grew up because I love the opal stone. And I told my mom once, I, these are beautiful stones. She goes, yeah, but they're bad luck for whoever doesn't have them in their birthstone, you know, the birth month. And I thought, well, well, that's odd. So you shouldn't have an opal because that's going to be bad. Or what about black cats crossing your path? Have you ever, have you ever seen a black cat go across your path and go, oh, I better not go that way. I know that could be bad luck. This is not good. Or breaking a mirror on purpose. This is a superstition. You're not supposed to break a mirror. One of the other things, when I was in Hawaii, I used to live there for a while, they would tell you never take a piece of lava home. Because there is this war between Pele, that's one of the gods over there, the, the volcanic fire god and the ocean god, and they're constantly battling one another, and the fire god's trying to take uh, area from the ocean, the ocean is trying to fight back, and they say, if you do that, that's going to be bad luck, and you'll have bad luck, and you'll regret it the day you take that lava home, because all these bad things are going to happen to you. Oh, what about the number 13? Is it number 13 bad luck? I don't know if you know this, but all the airlines you get on, there is not a row 13. Have you ever noticed that? Next time you get on a plane, walk through the plane, and it goes 10, 11, 12, 14, 15, 16, 17. That's how it goes in all the planes that are out there because it is so ingrained in the culture that the number 13 is unlucky. What about... Something old, something new, something borrowed, and something blue. If you don't have that at your wedding, then you're not going to get particular blessings or a four-leaf clover. Well, what about this? You cross your fingers for good luck, right? You put them behind your back, oh, I'm hoping, and that's, that's a wish that you make. Or what about... Knock on wood. I was at a family gathering not too long ago and something was said and all of a sudden somebody in the family went 
like that. <laughs> there it is, this superstition that's there. Or what about opening an umbrella indoors? Oh, that's so bad. You don't want to open walking under a ladder. I mean, that's more common sense than anything else. Something could fall off the ladder, you know. Uh, the final one is, and I used to have one of these, a rabbit's foot. You carry, you carry around a piece of a dead animal, you know, is what you're doing. And we have these myths that we hold on to, and they can end up turning into a belief system that we adhere to and say, that is why we don't do this and we don't do that because of all these superstitions which are out there. And God says, don't do that. And we get that inside the church as well. The Jews were great at doing this. There were myths that they came up with. For instance, the Golem of Prague in the year 1580 when the Jewish community of Prague was accused of the blood libel, the murder of Christians to use their blood for ritualistic purposes, Rabbi Judah Lowell prayed for proclamation. He received an answer and, and they practiced this idea, we better pray to make sure nothing happens to us because of what took place in the back and it's all based on a myth that never took place. Or what about the unfinished corner of creation? You know, if you go to the North Pole, there's nothing there. You go to the South Pole, there's nothing there. It's cold. There's nothing growing. It's because God didn't finish creation and he left it as a challenge for anybody else who would come along and say that they're a creator. Well, let them finish the creation down there then. And that's why the Jews, they have this myth that that's why it's ice cold and nothing grows down there. Or the darkness. This myth, myth asks a fascinating question. What happened to the darkness that existed before the creation of the world? According to the story, it is sealed away and hidden in the seventh compartment of Gehenna, another name for hell, which the wicked are sent upon death. Well, that's where the darkness is. And it's, where did you come up with this stuff? Or how about Og the giant? In this myth, the king of Bashan who happened to be a giant named Og, promised to swear fealty or faithfulness to Noah if he would allow this particular giant onto the ark during the biblical flood. Noah conceded that Og rode atop the ark's roof, becoming the only giant to survive the flood. Og, however, would later become a bitter enemy of Israel and is said to have uprooted a mountain in preparation for throwing it and obliterating the entire country. Now, why do they say that? Well, because in the book of Numbers, you still have the Nephilim, the giants, which are there. And so they, they say, see, that's why the giants. Are, and that's just four. They have many more myths besides that. Or what if you miss a worship service? Or what if you don't pray enough? Or what if you don't do... Remember I, a few weeks ago, I talked to you about baseball players and how they have their little routine that they go through about hitting each cleat with the bat and taking three swings and then they get in their stance or whatever it is they do. They spit a couple of times the tobacco that they have or gum or whatever they're doing. They have this routine because they think it's going to bring them some good luck. And that becomes more important than actually just playing baseball. Just play baseball. Don't worry about that other stuff. Well, we do that as Christians too. We can fall into a trap of believing something that isn't true, not holding to solid doctrine, not worrying about devils that might be out there. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Why should we be concerned about anything else? 
There's nothing that we have to be concerned about when Jesus is the one in control. 1 Timothy 1.3 says, As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain men not to teach false doctrines any longer, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. These promote controversy rather than God's word which is by faith. The goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and sincere faith. Some have wandered away from these and turned to meaningless talk. They want to teach or be teachers of the law, but they do not know what they are talking about or what they have so confidently affirmed. So this idea of keeping with solid doctrine, we want to make sure we understand the right and wrong and hold to it. So the end of this chapter, if you did a application, so to speak, or you did a summation or a summary, it's don't ask for signs. Remember that was up front. Jesus said a wicked and adulterous generation looks for a sign. And hold to sound doctrine. Now, to give you an example of this, years and years ago, is probably almost 20 years ago, I did what was known as a root development class, just teaching the basic doctrines of the Christian faith. We weren't in this building yet. And I took a survey, and I've mentioned this survey before, where I asked the people in the group, and there was probably 20 people in the group, maybe almost 30. And I asked them, I said, do we become angels when we die? Over one-third of the people in the group believe that we become angels when we die. And Scripture does not teach that at all. And so we want to make sure that we are avoiding error. For instance, hell. Is hell real? Is it two compartments? Is it not two compartments? Is heaven real? Is it just a state of mind? What about the Trinity? And by the way, we're talking about those things in the men's study uh, right now, which it's getting pretty exciting, actually, some of these discussions that we're having. But it's where we take the Scripture and we divide it, we open it up, we say, well, what does it say there? And we want to make sure we understand exactly what it says. But then it goes on here. Jesus, he's moving to this place called Caesarea Philippi. Now, in Caesarea Philippi, if you were to go there, Caesarea Philippi is this, this cave. It's a little more of an alpine area, but it's this cave that is there. And water comes out from the base of this cave. This cave has been formed because water comes out of the ground and some estimates are it comes out of the ground at 5,000 gallons a second. It's just flowing out of there. Maybe next week we'll have some pictures of that. But the water just flows out of there, and that's one of the three main sources of the Jordan River. It just comes out of nowhere. And up by the city of Dan, there's another one up there. The water just comes out of the ground. And they'll, if you take a, uh, a tourist trip over there, they'll sh- take you to the place. They'll set you down, and you'll see it right there. That's where the water's coming out. It's quite a sight to see. And Jesus was there. It says in verse 13 of chapter 16, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do, you, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And so a little bit more about the area of Caesarea Philippi. It was built 
again by Herod the Great as a place where sacrifice would take place up there. Pontius Pilate resided there, and later uh, Herod Philip rebuilt it, and he rebuilt it for Tiberius Caesar. It's a beautiful place. It, it has all these plants around it, and they've channeled the water, and it could be like a resort there. It's 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee. Again, it's an alpine climate, and the Sea of Galilee being almost 700 feet below sea level, it can get really hot down there, and people would go up to the area of Caesarea Philippi. And Josephus talked about the cave where the water flowed from, and if you go there, there are all these cutouts, and the, it's a big cliff, and there are all these cutouts in the cliffs. And they have also discovered there is this stone floor. And underneath the stone floor are all these jars. And inside these jars are sacrificed animals, namely goats, that would be in there. Because that was the area that they worshipped the god Pan. Now the god Pan, he looked like a satyr, which is the legs of a goat and the upper body of a human being with horns that would come out of his head. You know, you see the little flute-playing guy, and that's who Pan was, and people would sacrifice to this god. He also had a, a, a role in the idea of sexuality, and so there was all kinds of debauched behavior that would take place between animals and humans and sacrifices, and it was just... It was really a place where all of these gods were worshipped and Jesus gets up there with all of these gods in the background, all these sacrifices that had been made, and he places himself up against them, metaphorically speaking, and he goes, who do you say I am with all these other gods in the background? That's the way that it worked. And they said, well, you're, you're it. You're the Messiah. You're the Son of God. And they recognized this. Now, there are many opinions about Jesus, even today. If you ask somebody, who do you believe Jesus is? They'd say, well, he was a Jew. He was a teacher. He was a prophet. He was a good man. He was kind of anti-establishment. He went against the flow. He resisted the grain of society. People will say that. C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, said, that either he is Lord of heaven and earth, a liar, or a lunatic. Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will never die. He says, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Now, what if I told you all of those things? What would you say? You'd say, you're an idiot, is what you would say. You, you don't know what you're talking about. But Jesus said that. He said that he was, in fact, God in human form. And if he said these things and he was wrong about them, he either knew it or he didn't know it. If he didn't know it and he said these things about himself, what would you call him? Crazy. You're crazy. It's like the person who thinks they're a cat or a lizard. Have you seen those people? They have done the tattoos and they've had the underskin implants and... They split their tongue and all of that, and one guy thinks he's a lizard, and he has actually tattooed his whole face with these green-looking scales. Or the guy who's the cat, who is 
cut his upper lip and sharpened all of his teeth and he, he put holes in his upper lip to where he could put the line of filament line through there and look like a cat and he walks around with a tail. The guy, he's crazy. He thinks he's a cat. He's crazy. And if Jesus claimed to be God and he wasn't, he'd be crazy. But if he knew he wasn't God and he said it, then he would be a liar. He's totally lying. He's trying to get people to believe what isn't true. And so you are left with one conclusion. And he backed it up with miracles that he was in fact Lord. He was Lord of heaven because of the miracles that he performed. And our tendency even, I believe in the church, is to underestimate who Jesus is. And scripture is clear who he is. And what I'm going to do from this point, probably till the end of the message here, maybe not, is focus on who is it that we worship? Who is it that we believe in? What, what is it that's out there that is in control of everything? Now, the Greeks had a word for that, and it was logos. In the beginning was the logos, and the logos was with God, and the logos was God. The word logos means word. They had this idea that there was this instructive, dominant, organizing principle that governed the universe, and it was called the Word. And that's why John comes along speaking to the Greeks. He says, in the beginning was the Logos. A Greek person would have heard that and said, okay, we're on the same page. And he says, and the Logos was among us. And okay, well, this is getting interesting. The Logos became flesh and dwelt among us, and the Logos was God. They go, okay, well, the Logos, the defining principle of the universe and everything that governs it, that's God. Okay, I'm on board with that. Later down in verse 14, talks about the Word becoming flesh and dwelling among us, making His dwelling place among men. And you read that and go, oh, okay, if you're a Greek, or if you hear somebody say it, you go, okay, I get it. So who is God? There is only one God. Now, we have the Trinity, But Scripture declares there is one God. And this can be confusing. Because it's hard to explain what is supernatural when we're natural. There have been several metaphors used to try to come up with who God is and how can we explain Him. There's one way, for instance, with water. If you look at water, there is ice. We know what ice is. You like that in a cool drink. There is the liquid water that we drink itself. And then there is gas, which is water. It's the gas vapor that is there. Not steam necessarily, but it's the gas that can hover around. So there's three states of water. All of it's water. You could say, well, what's in that glass jar over there you can say water and it begins to condense and make into a liquid on the inside of the jar but it's still the gas or you go to the freezer and you see water water ice in there that's kind of like the trinity i want to tell you it falls so far short of who god actually is but it gives us a way to kind of relate some people will say well the trinity is like an egg the yolk the white slimy part and the shell on the outside. Now, which ones would you ascribe to which members of the Trinity? See where it breaks down? You you just can't do that. But all of it's the egg. And so we another one would be paint. You have the base 
and then you add some colors to it, maybe two other colors, and all of that would still be paint. It's what makes up the paint. But there is only one God, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, 1 Corinthians 8, 4, and Galatians 3, 20. There are other scriptures that talk about God being one. But there is a trinity. It consists of three persons, and this is talked about in the scripture. If you go to the book of Genesis, for instance, there's a phrase there, let us make God in our image. Now, are we created in the image of angels? No. Scripture says we're created in the image of God. And if God is saying us, who is he referring to? He's referring to himself. But the word Elohim is plural. And there was a singular... Nouns were used in the singular form, verbs as well. And you have the dual form. And then you have a multiplicity or a triune. And that's what Elohim is. is a triune description of who God is. It is not a dualistic idea. And so God says, let us create man in our image. He says, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, let us create man in our image. And all of this originates from the Father. If you remember in Matthew chapter 3, verse 16 and 17, at Jesus' baptism, Jesus was there. The Holy Spirit came down like a dove and lighted on him, and the Father spoke from heaven, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And so the members of the Trinity are distinguished from one another in various passages. But there is also this idea of this submission within the Trinity, which I'll get to in a moment. But each member of the Trinity is God, and that's spelled out in Scripture too. The Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God, and the Father is God. But now this subordination within the Trinity, you have the Holy Spirit and the Son being submissive to the Father. You have the Son being submissive to the Father. The Father is the one that everything originates from. So when you see Jesus who is called God and he submits to the Father, some people would want to say, how does he submit to himself? Well, he's not. He's submitting to the Father. That's the idea of what is known as the doctrine of modalism, that God is just one and he appears as a son, he appears as a Holy Spirit, he appears as the Father, and that's all good. And that's a heresy. That is not true. That is not what Scripture teaches. But there is this subordination with inside the Trinity. And there are tasks of the individual members of the Trinity. Like the Father, everything originates from the Father. And the Son does exactly what the Father tells him to do. And the Holy Spirit, like in creation, the, uh, God said, let us create man or let, us, let there be light. And Jesus, the spoken word of God, let there be light. And the Holy Spirit did what? He moved the cross, the face of the waters. All three are there when it comes to the creation. And the Son and is the agent through whom the Father does the following works, the creation and maintenance of the universe, divine revelation and salvation. Those things also come through the Holy Spirit. And it is clear to us that Scripture says the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. And all three are not the other. The Holy Spirit is not the Father, the Father is not the Son, And the Son is not the Holy Spirit or the Father. They have individual personalities. That's why he's self-existent. He has fellowship within the Trinity. He doesn't need us for anything. But he came along and he said, Hey, let's create man in our image. And man being both man and woman in Scripture, that's what man means. 
And so God created man and woman. And he said, hey, let's have fellowship with them. Not only that, but the father turns to Jesus. This is in my mind's eye. He turns to Jesus and says, guess what, Jesus? I got this great plan. Jesus goes, yeah, what's up? And Jesus says, or God says, the father, to Jesus, I'm going to make man. He goes, great, let's make man. And he goes, guess what else? He goes, what? You're going to become one. Great, I'll become a man. He goes, guess what else? You're going to be one forever. And he goes, great, let's be one forever. And Jesus now is a man forever. Now, what kind of God does that? I'm going to make a creation and make myself one of the creation. Oh, talk about getting brain fog and a brain cramp in there. How how does this work? I don't know how it works, but God said this is the way that it is happening. So there are scriptures that deal with the deity of the Father. Psalm 89, verse 26. He will call out to me, you are my Father, my God, the Rock, my Savior. And there are other scriptures. I'm I'm just going to give you maybe one or two in some of these. Then there is... The deity of the Holy Spirit. Now, this is the one that people get tripped up on. They think that maybe the Holy Spirit is some force. And sometimes, have you ever seen uh, in a large group, they'll call on people to pray, and somebody comes up and prays, and then you'll see somebody in the crowd going like this, like something's coming out of the fingertips. Now, there is this worship. I I get that, where you raise your hands and worship. But it's almost like... The Holy Spirit's going to come out of my fingers and is going to make... He's like a force. He's not like that. The Holy Spirit is a person. The Spirit speaks. I'm just going to tell you what the Spirit does here. The Spirit speaks. The Spirit fills people. The Spirit moved somebody. Remember the Ethiopian eunuch and the, the witnessing that was taking place there? It took Philip and translated him, beam me up, Scotty, and he put him in another place. That was the Spirit that did that. The Spirit indwells people. The Spirit informs or instructs people. The Spirit created the heavens and the earth. The Spirit can be rebelled against. The Spirit rests upon people. The Spirit gives rest. The Spirit can be grieved. The Spirit is eternal. The Spirit counsels us. The Spirit is good. The Spirit is holy. The Spirit is omnipresent. The Spirit intercedes. The Spirit reveals. The Spirit sacrifices. The Spirit seals, the Spirit testifies, the Spirit is omniscient, the Spirit comes from heaven, the Spirit empowers, the Spirit convicts, the Spirit gives life. Does that sound like a force to you? And I have multiple scriptures for all of these. The Holy Spirit is a person. He is the one that is guiding the church. He is the one that is in each one of us. He is the one that is equal to the Father and to the Son. But he always points to the Son, and the Son always gives glory to the Father, and that's how it works. This is the doctrine of the Trinity. And there are people that deny the doctrine of the Trinity. There are the oneness Pentecostals that would say, no, it's just one. There, there is not the Son, there is not the Father, there is not the Holy Spirit, it's just one. And he appears in three different ways. And then there's the deity of Jesus Christ. Now, I'm going to give you these scriptures, and if you have your Bible you should probably just write down the scripture references in the front of the Bible. I I remember when I became a believer in Christ, I didn't want to go to hell. I I was listening to 
uh, prophetic teachings and how the end of the world will eventually come and there, there is this judgment. And I did not know that Jesus was God in human form. That was not taught to me. I was a baby Christian. And I didn't learn it till later. Going through the scriptures, I go, well, well, is this true? And so I would ask about this. And there are multiple scriptures that say that Jesus is, in fact, God. And if somebody comes up to you and says, Jesus never said he was God. Oh, contraire. That's why they wanted to kill him. That's why they wanted to stone him. Even the Jews accused him of wanting to make himself equal with God, which means they thought Jesus was ascribing deity to himself. And he was ascribing deity to himself. That's why they wanted to kill him, because they thought he was committing blasphemy. So John 1.1, we all know this one. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John 5.18 says, For this reason the Jews tried all the harder to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. And make no mistake, that's exactly what he was doing. John 20.28 Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Romans 9, 5. For theirs are the patriarchs from whom is traced the human ancestry of Christ, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. Colossians 1, 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Colossians 2, 9. For in Christ all the fullness of deity lives in bodily form. Titus 2, 13. While we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. First John chapter 5, verse 20. We, also, or we know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true, even in His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. And there are, these are the direct scriptures. There are other scriptures that are a little more indirect that you can place together, but these are the direct scriptures. How many times do we have to be told that Jesus is God? He is the exact image. If you have seen Jesus, you have seen the Father. He claimed deity. Jesus goes on and makes a comment about what Peter said in verse 17 of Matthew chapter 16. He replied, Blessed are you. Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you, Peter, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Now, there is a Catholic interpretation to this. The Catholic Church believes that apostolic succession was given to Peter because Jesus turned to him and he said, on this rock I'll build my church. And Peter means little pebble. And, of course, Jesus was referring to himself as the rock. And he says, on this rock, not referring to Peter, the little pebble, but referring to himself, on this rock, I'm going to build my church. And we know that the church is built on the foundation of Jesus Christ, the cornerstone. But there are two others that are involved with this. There are the apostles and the prophets in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 19 and 20 it reads consequently you are no longer foreigners and aliens but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief's cornerstone this is one of the reasons 
and there's other scriptures that deal with this, one of the reasons why I don't believe there are apostles today, and there are Christians in the church that they hold themselves to be apostles, and there are signs that follow apostles, signs, wonders, and miracles. And if somebody wants to claim to be an apostle, I would ask them, what miracle have you done lately? And if they say, well, somebody got saved, well, that's not a miracle. A miracle would be raising somebody from the dead, you know, or parting a river, something like that, where they just go up and they speak to it. That, and if somebody does that, I'm, amen, you are an apostle. I'm going to say that. But we, sometimes we like to say, well, somebody who goes out and they start a work, they're like an apostle. They used to call Chuck Smith. Some would call Chuck Smith an apostle. And he go, no, I'm not an apostle. I'm just a pastor. Yes, I'm just a pastor. Fellas is what he would say. And you, that's, that's how he existed out there. He's just a humble servant. But others will ascribe apostleship to him. And then there are those who ascribe apostleship to themselves. Well, unless you're the foundation of the church, I don't think you're necessarily an apostle. So we look at Scripture to get the idea of what proper doctrine is, whether it's the Trinity, the deity of Jesus Christ, how the church is built. It goes on in verse 19, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. So Peter and the other apostles were given the authority that God provides to them over the church that will come into existence on the day of Pentecost. They are the ones that have the final say as to what takes place. Now, we know that they were flawed individuals as well. Even Peter, you know, he started to live like a Jew and condemn some of the Gentiles in the church and told them, you need to leave, live like a Jew. And Paul came along and he rebuked him for that. And Peter, I believe he repented. But Peter was a great apostle as well as was Paul and the other ones. We just don't have an extensive knowledge of these guys. And so they were given the keys of the kingdom. It's not that St. Peter is waiting at the gates of heaven with the key to open it up and see if you are worthy or not, if your name is written in the book of life. That's not how it works. It simply means the apostles have the authority to adjudicate matters inside the church while here on earth. Verse 20 says... Then he warned his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Christ. If you find out that Jesus is the Christ, and you're with him, and he's doing all these miracles, and somebody comes up and says, is he the Christ? What do you want to say? Well, I can't tell you. But Jesus told him, don't tell anybody. I think they probably, yeah, he is. Come on. Come along. The reason that he would install this commandment for these guys is because he wanted to remain a little bit anonymous to be able to move amongst the people and of course we know that that later became almost impossible where he couldn't do that his time had not yet come and of course the people wanted to make him ruler over the land at that time and he was trying to forestall that until his time came to be crucified Verse 21 says, From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hand of the elders, the chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said. This shall never happen to you. Jesus turned to Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. I don't know about you, but I don't want to be rebuked by Jesus. 
I would rather have him say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. How small must Peter have felt? He just admitted, you are the Christ. You are the Son of God. And it shall never happen to you, Lord. And he goes, get behind me, Satan. It's like, oh, oh, that would hurt the ego a little bit. But of course, God provides those times of humiliation for our benefit. And this certainly happened to Peter. Verse 24 says, Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now, this is tough. It goes on to say, verse 25, For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will find it. What good is it if a man, or what good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world yet forfeits his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? So this idea of denial, this is the greatest hurdle we must overcome in this life. Where we deny ourselves. Let me ask you. If you want to test this out, try this. Over the next week, never use the pronoun in the first person singular, I. Just don't say it. Just try to do that. You think you can do it? If you respond to me, say, I can. Well, you just blew it right there. Just try not to use the personal pronoun, I. Just try to make the focus about everyone else, and Jesus Christ. You want something else? Try not to eat for two days. If you try not to eat for two days, guess what your body is going to do, and guess what you're going to think? First, your body's going to say, feed me. Your body's going to send signals from the brain to the stomach, going out your whole body, and your body's going to tell you, you're going to die. You need to eat something. And unless you're under doctor's care, if you don't eat for two days, you're not going to die. You might think you're going to die, but you're not going to die. Just try to do that. Just drink nothing but water for two days. And then watch what your mind's going to do. Your mind's going to say, I'm hungry. And you're going to say that to yourself. I'm hungry. If, just try not to think the word I. You won't be able to do it. Our sole existence is built on I, me, mine. R- remember that uh, one movie, Saving Nemo? Remember the seagulls? They said something over and over and over. Mine? 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 That's what they said. A whole flock of them. And that's what we do. We say, mine, my, mine, I, mine, me. That's what we say to ourselves all the time. And we also tell others, give a person a chance to talk about themselves. And I'm guilty of this too. Somebody comes up and asks you questions. So, tell me about yourself. Well, I, and then you go off on this rant about yourself. And you probably have a wall, not everybody, but some people have a wall at home. It's the I love me wall. Everything I've done, this place I've gone, and and now it's transferred from the wall at home to the wall on Facebook and Instagram. 
I, look at me, what I've done, this is my life. And we present ourselves in the me generation. And God says, hey, try to knock off the me. Try to knock off the I. The one who wants to follow God has to deny himself. And this is, I cannot tell you how hard this is. I mean, if you're really thinking about it, everything is devoted to you and your life. At the end of the day, when the day is done, are you going to turn to somebody and say, I'm tired. Can you not stay awake with me for one hour and pray? Oh, I'm so tired, though. And we start then violating Philippians chapter 2, verse 14. We start complaining. And if somebody says, won't you stay up with me and pray for an hour? But I'm tired. I don't want to do. And then the complaining and then the arguing starts taking place. Just try to live a selfless existence even for a few hours where you concentrate on nothing but Jesus Christ. And that's what God would have us do. Matter of fact, he says, if you would follow after him, you would pick up your cross daily. Now, if we change that to maybe the time of the Westerns, instead of a cross, you'd carry around a noose. I'm going to pick up my noose, put it around my neck, and carry it daily. Or an electric chair. If Jesus was electrified, it wasn't prophesied that he would be, we would wear little electric chairs around our necks and say, see? And we think that, well, I'm bearing my cross. It's right here on my neck. And that's not what Jesus meant. He meant that, no, put yourself on the cross... Stretch out your hands and let yourself be crucified. Just like Jesus did for the sins of the world. Where you deny yourself in all areas. Where you live for others. And if somebody came along, say, say the country really takes a turn for the worst. Which eventually, I think it will. It'll take a turn for the worst. Not that I'm a prophet. It's just the way the world's going. And when it does, what if they come along and say, oh, are you a Christian? Well, I want to let you know that there's going to be this new tax on Christians. And we're going to take some of your wealth because what you teach is hate. You have hate speech and you hold to these things that are not given to freedom according to the ways of the world. And by the way, the tax is so much you're going to have to give up your home. We're going to take your home from you. Would you say, okay, that's fine. It's not mine anyhow. The Lord gave it to me for a little while. You know, that actually happened to the Christians. They had to give up even their homes. It says in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 32. Remember those earlier days after you had received the light when you stood your ground in the great contest in the face of suffering? Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You sympathized with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had a better and lasting possession. And so this idea of being willing to give up anything, including our own lives, for the sake of Christ, that's what he's asking for. Verse 27 says, For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what he has done. And this is where the believer receives the reward. 
We have already passed through judgment, accepting Jesus as our Lord and Savior. But this is where he gives us our reward. That's according to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. He says, I tell you the truth, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now that, we have our chapter uh, delineations here. This verse should probably be in the next chapter. But what I'm going to leave you with is if we're so concentrated on ourselves and this life and making much out of it, and by the way, we are supposed to exist where we have jobs and we gain wealth and we gain income so that we might have something to share with those who are around us. That's scriptural. We're supposed to do that. But this idea, if that's all we do, we're just existing. We're not living. And God wants us to live. And it's this oxymoron. In order to live... You have to die. When you start denying yourself, and if you are able to do it effectively, that's when you really come to life. And the world would say, no, that's not living. Living is going to some far-off Caribbean island and woohoo, living it up, you know, or some place called Lost Wages. You go over there and you just live it up. That's what the world says it is, and God says, no, that's not where it's at. It's the giving up of self. My prayer for you is that you will be able to die to self, and me. I want to die to self so that I can be more like Christ, that I will follow what doctrine he says is right, true, just, and fair. All those things that are spelled out in Scripture. And I know that the Lord who indwells you by the power of the Spirit will accomplish this, as you set your sights on submitting to him. As you set your sights on dying to self. Let's pray. Father, we ask for this, this help. This help to deny ourselves to die. And Father, we recognize Jesus as the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, the one who promised us salvation and who promised us your Holy Spirit by which we might live a life of self-denial. And Lord, you didn't ask us to give up joy in pursuit of self-denial. But we had asked, Lord, that you would help us to live a life that you have called us to live. And help us to learn from the mistakes of others like the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And according to your will, this will be accomplished in Jesus' name. Amen.